Mr. Bing West, who's been on here two times now for uh, Call Sign Chaos about uh, former Secretary of Defense General Mattis, as well as uh, Last Platoon, which Last Platoon is one of my favorite books that I have I have shamelessly hawked it at a ton of people. And I listened to the book you recommended, the one next in your, your list of uh, of The Village. But before I keep going on, could you please introduce yourself for all the new listeners? Sure. Um, I'm Bing West. Uh, I guess you could say I'm a Marine. <laughs> um, I had the honor of serving for President Reagan as his Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs. I had my own business, etc. Um, I have four great kids and eight great grandchildren. Uh, great. What I mean is. They're, They're great, terrific right? grandchildren, not great <laughs> grandchildren. Yeah, I, 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 I fought in Vietnam. I didn't fight in World War One. So um, I've spent a lot of time on the battlefields of Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, as well as in the halls of the White House. So I suppose what makes me of, if if you will, of a tiny interest to people is that. I understand what it's like to fight, and I understand what it's like to be those who are making decisions about why we do fight. For your book, The Village, about Vietnam, or about that particular village in Vietnam, do you view it as as a positive or a negative, that they become involved with this village, that the people know them, that they invite them into their house for dinner? You know, they say like surgeons, surgeons need to be detached. And at face value, that sounds impersonal. It sounds, oh, they're not caring. But the reality is, is you have to be detached. You can't be looking at every person you're operating on as, oh, my God, a little girl or, you know, someone's grandfather. But rather, they have to be clear headed so that they can do the job at hand and do it well. Do you do you believe that applies to war more specifically the village? Do you have to, what happens when you get to know the village? Does that have, a, is, as you said in Call Sign Chaos, you know, no greater ally, no worst enemy. Do you, is there a, is there a negative side to that? I don't think so on the ground. I'm being very careful with my words. Sure. For, for a very basic reason, and that is, let me start with Vietnam. Now, let me stop be, before that. My, my two uncles fought on Guadalcanal and, and Okinawa, which was uh, one of the major battles of World War II, and they were Marine platoon commanders. And in that battle, tens of thousands of Americans died, and well over 100,000 Japanese died and possibly 50,000 to 100,000 civilians who were on the island died. There was no such thing as being friends with the villagers in Okinawa. It was the Japanese had dug in, the Americans came ashore, and all hell broke loose. Ah... Uh, when I was in Vietnam, I had a variety of jobs. 
jobs. That's a funny way of looking at going to war, you know, a job. My, what, was my, what was my job? Yeah. Well, I was in force reconnaissance up along the demilitarized zone, which we referred to as the DMZ or dead marine zone, because it separated North Vietnam from South Vietnam as a strip of jungle with one river in the middle of it uh, that was about 12 miles wide. And uh, the Secretary of Defense at the time, Robert McNamara, whom I thought was a disgraceful human being because he didn't believe in his mission. And uh, President Lyndon Johnson, whom I believed was a bully who was very uncertain in his own mind what he was doing, but berated other people. And they decided that they were so fearful of the Chinese becoming involved that in essence, they gave up on the war before it began. And so they said, we could defend in South Vietnam, the South Vietnamese and the Americans, but we couldn't go across the border into North Vietnam. Well, the minute you give the enemy a sanctuary, you're going to lose because he can, anytime he's getting beaten, retreat into his corner and wait until he wants to fight again. And so when I was in force, what we call force recon up there, I went on patrols with four other Marines. We, we went very, very small into the jungle in our patrols so we could run away. We had no intentions of going up against tens of thousands of North Vietnamese by ourselves. What we would do is we would sneak around and when we saw where they were, we would call air and artillery down upon them. And in that job, my job was to kill. I mean, that's all it was. Um, and then I went into this village, which was outside an air base below the demilitarized zone. And the generals were concerned because they were getting rocket attacks against our aircraft coming from this village and other villages but they didn't want to kill the civilians. So they sent in a group of us and our job was to, I mean, looking back on it, our job was to live in the village, 5,000 Vietnamese and stop the rocket attacks. And there were 15 of us. <laughs> I mean, the Marines, you know, it's kind of like one, one, one mob, one Texas Ranger. I mean, the, the Marines undertake things without thinking, well, how many people really needed to do this? But what happened when we got into that village and we were there for 485 days, well over a year, we gradually began to know the villagers by in, as individuals and they got to know us. And we learned how to communicate with them. They learned how to communicate with us. We, we slept in their houses. All of their houses were thatch, simply thatch roofs and, and dirt floors. And we would move constantly so the Viet Cong wouldn't know where we were. And we would fight the Viet Cong at night when they came in. 
we didn't have any advantages over them. We didn't have uh, night seeing devices or any technology then. But over the over months, over months of time, when you got to know everyone and they got to know you, if you have nothing else to do all day and all night, except be in a very small area that was only two miles by two miles, how, how well do you get to know the people? Awfully well. Um, and so I'd have to say our attitudes changed toward them and their attitudes changed toward us to the degree that if we were in a fight, we would never call in air artillery. We wouldn't think of it. I mean, this was our village. Some of those people were going to get hurt. And when we left and when some of our sergeants left, et cetera, and you rotated home, the villagers wrote letters to the parents mm -hmm. saying how much they appreciated them. And in English, right? They'd spend hours and then they would have us mail the letters back thanking the parents for sending their, their sons to, to fight for them. So it was, it was really most remarkable and totally different than my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it, it, and the reason I hesitated because of your question, Tom, if I go back to the question, you know, do you, do you change your attitudes? Do you, do you have to be careful that you don't become too soft or something? Look, who was it? Was it Aquinas who said what the definition of a just war is? That your cause must be just. That your chances of winning, because a lot of people are going to die, must be high. And that your actions in killing people must be proportional. In the village, I believe that we abided by those three tenets because we knew them. We, we were human beings, they were human beings. But let me give you now the other two examples, just so if anyone's listening, they can understand how complex this is. We celebrate June 4th, 1944 as being liberation date. That was the date we went ashore at Normandy, the greatest invasion the world had ever seen, a million people coming ashore and coming back into Europe and pushing out the Nazis. Okay. Do you know that day we killed over 40,000 French on, on the landing? We probably killed many more French than we did Germans. And the poor French never knew it was coming. And they were in their houses. And what happened? As the battle began, one fundamental element popped up that people hadn't paid attention to. When you turn loose the dogs of hell, and when you begin to bomb the living big daylights out of someplace, there's huge smoke and dust. I mean, pillars of smoke and dust that go up four or 5,000 feet into the air as though there's been a volcano. But then we were sending in all our bombers. And our bombers were supposedly had all these targets, but when they got in there, they couldn't see anything. So what do you do if, if you're the pilot or the bombardier of an aircraft, you've flown all the way from England, you've been 
You've been told this is the greatest battle that will ever occur. You have 5,000 to 10,000 pounds of high explosives in your ordnance, in your belly of your aircraft. You're flying along and you can't see nothing. What do you do? One choice is you turn around and you come home with all that ordnance. The other choice is you just fly and drop. Well, in that war, imagine what they did. They flew and they dropped. So we dropped tens of thousands of pounds of high explosives upon villages that had nothing to do with the war, where we were, because they missed their targets, and they all died. Many, many French died. So when you say to me, well, hmm, and then I get you finally to the, to the last point. What did we do in the summer of 1945? We faced that agonizing, President Truman faced that agonizing choice. Does President Truman order us ashore to attack into Japan, knowing that over 200,000 American soldiers and Marines would die? Or does he drop the atomic bomb? on civilians and just wipe out some cities to show the Japanese, we will wipe you off the face of the earth. Well, there's no compassion there. Uh, That is straight up war. And we drop those bombs and we save 200,000 American lives. So long, long answer to your question. When you're on the battlefield, sometimes you can help the civilians. And sometimes because you're there, the civilians are going to die. 76 years ago this morning, we dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. And it's, you know, I should perhaps go back and make clear that with my question is I don't agree with the premise I put forward of staying detached as someone that's never been in combat who very best has talked to combat veterans from from grunts to delta force they all they all talk about the humanity of it how you cannot become a monster you can't become the thing you're fighting because then why are we even fighting but man, yeah, you're right. You, you're right. You see that with them going in there and finding the woman who was helping you guys, right? And they, sh- they shoot her in the face, shoot her in the forehead in front of her parents. You know, anyone that was harboring American Marines, they slit their throat, or they, dr- or you know, when you're fighting this enemy. Granted, it was Marine, but they put the stick through his cheeks and then pulled him around on chains, and his mouth was black with flies. Yeah, we never found him. Yeah, that, that, we we we. He eventually died. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you you get all sides of it. You, you know what? Hey, before we go f- any farther, sure. Okay. Last time we talked, you were going to talk to a couple of your CIA buddies whom you'd had on, remember? Yeah. And they they hadn't heard of Rudy Anders. Yeah. And I said, shame on you. 
So did they go back and, and even look on Google to see who, who he was? They, and these are just young kids. What are they, in their 50s, for gosh sakes? They've forgotten <laughs> what we did? You know, we used to really fight. These guys now, they go out and, you know, they swagger around. You know, tell them if they don't know who Rudy Enders is, they're not real CIA operatives. Tell I'll, them, come I'll on. I'll send them this look. clip. I'll send them this clip. But it, look, tell, just look on Google. R-U-D-Y-E-N-D-E-R-S. I, the man was one of the living legends of the CIA. It, 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 the stories of what he did from from Cuba through Vietnam and Angola um, and Nicaragua. I mean, they live on forever in the CIA. <laughs> he's one of the he's one of the plank holders in the special operations group that he was he was in charge of. Yeah. And I, here are these young whippersnappers in their fifties, and they don't even know who he is. What, what's going on here? I, I texted them both. They're both in you're, special you're activities division. Hey, I said, hey, Rudy Anderson. Hey, you, you don't even study your own history. That's on them. Hey, I will show them this clip. I know it's Joe, on them. Dale, that's on you guys. Not me. I texted them. I said, hey, Rudy Enders says hi. And they both said, who's Rudy? And then I was like, right. okay, I so was like, well, now Bing's making me look like an idiot. So I went back to you and you were like, what do you mean they don't know who he is? So now I'm, I'm not like, I don't. I've never, I've shot like a gun 10 times in my life. And I'm like, you don't know who Rudy Enders is? But then at the same time, I'm like, but I didn't know who he was. Yeah, I don't know. I they Okay, well, they get after them. I will. Say, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it to Just them. Try, try G-O-O-G-L-E and see who he is. <laughs> can, can you get, can you get Rudy Enders on here? Do you think you Oh, can? sure. I'd love to. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you an email. You His stories about about what happened in Cuba with the missile crisis and what really happened oh. and and what he did in Nicaragua what he what defining his wife in Way City in the middle of the battle and and then mining the harbors in Nicaragua and then then going over and getting the the mercenaries out of Angola I mean this 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 guy is and and the, the time the great white shark came at him and how he lost part of his hand to a Murray eel I mean the, this Everyone knows Rudy Andrews. I mean, it just. Uh, well, I need you to get him on here then. Cause yeah, I, I do that. I, I do love that. the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, relatively, you know what I mean. And it's no, it's um, again to kind of reinforce what I was saying about um, you know, the civilian side of things and being detached. My dad, yeah. my dad's dad was supposed. He was eighteen years old. It was going to be part of the mainland invasion. Yeah, I one hundred percent would not be here. He would have been thrown right into the meat grinder and. Right, those those troop transport doors open and like saving Private Ryan, like d- done. I wouldn't be yeah. here. I can't argue for anything but the atomic bombing. Well, maybe thing. life would be better in that case if I wasn't here. I don't know. I'm enjoying this ride. I'm enjoying this ride. But I mean, right? We see it though. It's ultimately all those people would have died anyway. Sure. If you either take them both out, or we do a mainland invasion, and then. As Truman said, he said, if I didn't use these atomic bombs and then one day the American public learned about them, I, would, I think, who was it, Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project, who said to Truman, yes. you better you better prepare your impeachment statement then because you will, you will face trial if you don't drop these bombs. And it's, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's it's war. That's the raw, naked face of war is, I mean, what, do you turn around and go, sorry, we couldn't see it? We couldn't see the target, so we didn't drop the bombs. No, there's a million men 
You have Eisenhower giving them the speed. You're going in there. They're, these guys are in their pillboxes. They're ready to mow you down. They know you're coming. You know they know you're coming. And there's some dust kicked up. You're dropping it. Oh, no, what if we take out a village? Well, as long as you take out some of the Germans, there's no do-overs. There's no take two. Well, take two, guys. Now, now let me let me, let me me tell you how far we've come and why I think it's troubling. We now have a rule that I find bizarre, but I, I was in on the front lines in Afghanistan toward the end of the war, 2000, well, toward 2012, when we were still there. And we were looking at some Taliban and we called for air support and the pilots came on station and then they quizzed us and said, are you really sure the Taliban? And I thought, this is weird. And I'm listening to this conversation going on. And then they said, well, okay, we have to authenticate. And when it was over, they did drop their bombs, but only because we had a, a very good Ford air controller on the ground who actually had been a Huey pilot. And I said to him, I said, what is that all about? He said, the new rules are that when one of our jet aircraft goes back to base, they look at the video of the bomb drop and they second guess whether he should have dropped the bombs. And therefore the pilots have to second guess the person on the ground and agree with the person. And if they don't agree with the person, they don't drop the bombs. I mean, because they're gonna have a lawyer back at their base looking at the video. That's crazy. That That's how far we've gone. I think that's wrong, but we've done it. It's yeah, take your breath away with no, that it, one. It huh? does. It's because it's I. You know, I always have to fold this. Like I always have to be very clear in the questions I ask the combat veterans, like yourself, or the CIA guys, or Mike Durant, Mogadishu. Like because I haven't served, and because everything I say is based on an audio book that you know I learned about the Cold War, and I can learn about a battle in World War II where it's a two-minute chapter in a book, but you know, for some people, it was the end of the line. For hundreds of thousands of people, it was the end of the line. So it's. You know, from an from a leather chair in an air conditioned apartment in twenty twenty one and there's not bombs blowing up on my apartment. I I have to be very cognizant of just how removed I am from warfare. So when I can ask something simple about should we have dropped should you be close to the villagers? Should you not be close to the villagers? I also understand I'm asking these like hundred thousand foot questions with, you know, um, it's like looking at a looking at a country from a satellite, and it's like one pixel is an entire town. Like you're not getting the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff does take my breath away because I have to be aware of what I'm talking about. It's very, it's on a screen, and it's just I listened to an audiobook, and now he's on here, and we're gonna do the episode and upload it to YouTube. And it's like there's so much more to it that, yeah, I mean, ultimately, does it come down to you? You have to be better than the thing you're fighting. You can't be, let's massacre everyone. If you're in the village and you have to have dinner with them and you have to, right, you have to, you have to pay an MRE to get Joe and he comes and has the other kids come make the breakfast table for you guys. And like, yeah. And then ultimately you could say that there's also a tactical advantage though, right? 
to the point where it is sort of winning hearts and minds in that they're also going to be there for you and provide intel for you and 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 fight with you and it's <sighs> well the answer is in the villages that we were in in Vietnam the answer is yes but we had a general by the name of how well his name probably doesn't make any difference but who said we have to do the same in Afghanistan and we have to be willing to take a risk of stepping on a mine so that we can show the villagers that we're with them and eventually if we drink enough tea with the village elder he'll come over to our side I thought that was crazy because once you knew the culture, you knew that wasn't going to happen in Afghanistan. It happened in Vietnam because their culture was more accepting of us. Mm. The Muslim culture is not accepting of people who are not Muslims. And even if you are a Muslim, you are not welcome many places. Their, their social strata is totally different than the Vietnamese. And to have some of these generals take what they thought was some of the lessons from Vietnam about winning hearts and minds and try to apply them to Iraq and Afghanistan, I had been in Vietnam. They hadn't, and they had no idea what they were talking about. And the troops quickly knew that was crazy, that we could not do in Afghanistan what we did in Vietnam. If I took 15 Marines and went into a village in Afghanistan, we wouldn't last a week because the villages would report us to the other side. They were part of the other side. It was in their genes. They were, they were their cousins, their brothers, their sons. It was entirely different than Vietnam. So two, two very, very different wars because of the cultures. Yeah, it seems one is entirely incompatible. There's no... There's no breaking bread. There's no... No. Yeah. It's... I mean, it's... Well, I better, I, I better be about my work of writing my next book. I gotta get back to that. I, I will let you go. I kept you for seven minutes longer than I said I would. Um, please, please, please put in a word to Rudy Enders. I will. I, I, well, and don't forget the name of this book that we're talking about is called The Village. It's a pretty good story about what happened to 15 it's Marines. It's fantastic. I'll put it, it's in, uh, as always, I'll put it in the description. Get it on Audible. It's a fantastic listen. And it's, I mean, there's also, real quick, but there's also, right, I mean, there's some, like, there's some all quite on the Western Front vibes to it as well in terms of the randomness, right? When it gets ready, yes. it gets down, plant your feet, shoot the gun, and you hit a rock. Yeah. And it's like... Oh, that could have, and then it's, you feel the person go right by him and it goes, like, shoot at him. It's like, let's just wait. And then it turns out they're eight Americans that you find out the next morning. You're like, we almost mowed them down. That level of randomness, that, that random aspect of war, I thought you captured very well. Well, thank you. It, uh, it was on the Commandant's reading list for 40 or 50 years, and then it dropped off. So I asked them why it dropped off, and they said, we don't do counterinsurgency anymore. No, what a bunch of what a, what a load of shit. It's a yeah. great book. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. I'll put it in the description along the lines of also Last Platoon. Everybody listening, go get that book. I can't stop fanboying about that book. Mr. West, I will let you go. I've already kept you longer than I said I would because I'm a terrible person. And I will email you. We'll get Rudy Enders. 
I will. I'll get I'll get Rudy on with you. Awesome. And then tell tell you tell your two CIA buddies they have to listen to I'll them. I'll smack them around. <laughs> I'll, they'll kill me, but I'll smack them around. I'll be like, this All is right. this is from Bing, and I'll hit them around. It's <laughs> exactly. and I'll send you an email because as we're going, we're marching through your library of books you've written. So I'll also send you an email, and we'll set up the next podcast. But Mr. Bing West, God bless you, sir. God bless America. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your stories. That was thirty minutes, but that was that was powerful. That was I appreciate your candid uh, your candid accounts of of what's going on. So thank you, sir. All right, Semper Fidelis. Yes, sir. God bless America. T- talk to you later. Recording stopped.